Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be as the appropriation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Seems to be an appropriate theme of, as we have undecorated for Christmas and kept some red up for Valentine's Day coming up in February as we shift uh, focuses, uh, focus uh, to that. But as John wraps up chapter 4 of 1 John that we're going through, he switches gears a little bit to God's perfect love. Now, humanly speaking, nothing's perfect, right? You can always do something a little bit better. You can always, um, there's always room for improvement, but not for God's love. God's love is perfect. And he talks about it from verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter. And we're going to take two Sundays to get through, through this. But just in the six verses that Evan wrote, read for us and that we're looking at this morning, he mentions love 14 times. Now, in order to set our minds in the right place to have a proper perspective on this text, I want to go back, way back, to the sixth day of creation. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, <clears throat> and it's written there, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, Salem, according to our likeness, Demut. Now, since God is the eternal spirit, being made in God's image is not physical. It can't be physical that he's referring to. It has to do with the immaterial part of us. The root of the Hebrew word for image, salem, seems to mean something carved out. Uh, let us carve out man. Let us shape man in our image, literally. In other words, let's replicate ourselves in man. Let's shape him. Let's form him, salem, to be demut, to be like us, to be reflective of us, to be similar to us. So mankind then was created in an exalted fashion from everything else that had been created. Man was created to be like God, not to be God, but to be like God. So what does that mean? On the one hand, we are created in a trinity fashion as well, with body, soul, and spirit. No other animal has that trinity in them. But it also means that mankind was created for interpersonal relationships. You see, the Trinity was always a Trinity. It is always a Trinity and will always be a Trinity. And God, by nature, exists in fellowship and relationship within that Trinity. So after He had created all the other living creatures, God said, now, let's make man with the capacity for relationships. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7 that man is the image and glory of God. 
A.W. Tozer, writing in his book, Pursuit of God, describes it this way. He says, you and I are in little, our sins accepted, what God is in large. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. In our sins, we lack only the power. The moment the Spirit quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. This is not true of anything else in all of creation. This is an aspect of the creation-evolution discussion that's not usually talked about, but may be the most important point in that whole discussion. No other creature that God made did He make in His image. In the entire universe of time and space, this is only true of humanity. We know that we share biological features with animals and, and even plants with cellular structure, with even the elements of atomic particles. And even though we share in the biology with the rest of uh, creation or the rest of the creatures, since they are all designed by God to live in a common environmental uh, environments physically, we are not like them. Man cannot ascend from them. He is not a highly evolved ape. He was at the very outset man that was made, made transcendent to all the rest of the biological creation because he was made in the image and likeness of God. He was made for something no other life in the universe was made for, and that is relationships. He created us that way so that we could have the ability to personally con connect, personally relate to other people, but more importantly, especially to relate to God, to be able to love others and to love God. Animals don't have that capacity, nor will they, or can they develop that capacity in that mankind is unique. The core, then, of the image of God can be summed up with the words personal relationship. Personal relation. Mankind is made with a capacity to love, to love others and to love God. And within the framework of that love, there is fellowship, there's care, there's sharing of thoughts and attitudes and experiences that makes love the riches of all human experiences. The image of God, then, is a capacity for uh, personal relationships which comes down to giving and receiving of love. Because you probably already know, the human heart cries for love more than anything else. It's a theme of more songs, more plays, more books, more films, more literature in general, more poems than anything else. We long to be loved, and we long to love. We long to find that perfect love. Some of you remember a group called Queen from way back in the 1970s. How many remember Queen? Okay, that shows where we were from. They came out with a song, Somebody to Love. Remember that one? Somebody to Love. And the chorus goes, which they sing a gazillion times, somebody, somebody, oh, somebody, somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? because we have been made in the image of God for that reason. Everybody's searching for that perfect love relationship, and that draws us from Genesis chapter 1 all the way into 1 John chapter 4, where John presents for us a study of perfect love. That's his theme. That's his point here in this passage. Verse 12 ends with, His love is perfected 
in us. Some of your translations will say, uh, will say his love has been made complete in us. We'll, we'll, uh, complete in us. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 17, this is how love is perfected among us. Verse 18, perfect love drives out fear. And at the end of that same verse, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Perfect love, perfect love. There's something called perfect love. Four times here in those three verses, we read about perfect or perfected love. It's what everybody's looking for, right? Everybody's looking for it, and no one will ever find it outside of a relationship with God. The Bible uses a number of different adjectives when describing love. It talks about brotherly love. It talks about sincere love. It talks about abounding love, serving love, and a lot of other descriptors. But the greatest adjective has to be the word perfect. Can't get any better than perfect. So what does that really mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word teleao. Teleao, and it means to make perfect, to complete, to accomplish. It basically means to carry out something to its fullest extent, to carry, out it, to carry it out to the max. It's the same root word, interestingly enough, that Jesus used when he was dying on the cross and had come to the end and said, it is finished. He used the form of teleao, tetelestai. Same root verb to say, it's complete, it is finished. And what he was saying was, what I've just done can't be added to. What I've just done cannot be improved upon. And that's the kind of love we're talking about here. It's a love that cannot be added to. It's a love that cannot be improved upon. It's a perfected love with all the completeness that could only come from God. And John is trying to get across what he's trying to get across is the fact that the fullness of God's love is available to us. Perfect love is a legacy that God has left to his children. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, God's love has been poured out, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, when we were saved, a floodgate was opened and the fullness and lavishness of God's love was poured out into our hearts. And it's to be reciprocal. You see, the fullest expression of that love granted to us comes when we are then obedient to the Lord. 1 John 5, 3, we'll be looking at that in, in, a, in a few weeks here. This is love for God, John says, to keep His commands. We know and experience the full richness of that love in obedience. And if you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Same word, teleao, made perfect in him. Obedience is the evidence of that love. And that love is only available from God through Christ. We're not talking about a love that's attached to emotion, sentimentality. We're, we're talking about a love that's connected directly to salvation and sanctification. It's a love that is connected directly to knowing Christ and obeying Christ. Knowing Christ grants us that love. Obeying Christ allows us to enjoy the fullness of it. Let me say that again. Knowing Christ grants us that love. Obeying Christ allows us to enjoy it the fullness of it. That's perfect love. 
So as we look at chapter 4 here in 1 John, we're going to find the details of how perfect love functions or operates in the Christian and why that's so important. Now, this is actually the third time John specifically talks about this special love. The first time was back in chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, pointing out that love is a proof that we're in the fellowship. Anyone who loves, who agapes, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing uh, in them to make them stumble. But, he goes on to say, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Then in chapter 3, verse 10, he shares how the love is the evidence of the sonship, our, our being adopted into the family of God. There John discusses love as a proof of true fellowship. If you're really in the light, if you're really in the fellowship, it will be proven by your love. It's evidence of being in the fellowship. He says there in verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, he says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, within the body, within the fellowship, in, uh, is evidence of our sonship. Now, we come back again here in chapter 4 to the third time that John brings this topic of, and this time he identifies it as that perfect love, which is not just a proof of fellowship, nor just an evidence of sonship, but it is the manifestations of the presence of God in us. See, the first time he's saying it means you, you belong to the community of believers. The second time it means you belong to the family of God himself. And now this third time, it means God actually dwells in you. Each time, John goes deeper and deeper and deeper as he brings these subjects back up again. Now, we've mentioned this before, but just as a reminder, what John is doing throughout this epistle is giving tests by which we can know we are truly saved. you got doubts about yourself, about your salvation. This is what John says, here's how you know. And some of the tests are doctrinal. What's your view of sin? What's your view of Jesus Christ? And some tests are moral, and the moral tests have to do with obedience and love. And those are the evidences, and they, and, and, and they come together. If you love, you obey. If you obey, you demonstrate love. So let's get into it. He starts out with a bang in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. There's the premise. Let us love one another. John is telling us here that doctrine and theology is not sufficient to prove true salvation, nor is it sufficient evidence of conversion. True salvation will demonstrate itself in love by their fruit, right? It needs to be demonstrated. People need to see it. Dear friends, he says, let us love one another. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 21, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Must. You don't have a choice. So this becomes both a test and an exhortation. We have been given the love, literally it's been poured into us, 
which then has given us this capacity to love, and we need to take that capacity now in the strength of the Holy Spirit and love to perfection. He's talking to believers here, dear friends, he calls them, dear friends. He uses the word agapethos, divinely loved ones. Those whom God loves, let us love one another. This obviously comes from the word agape, agapethos, the unconditional love of God. It's the love of the will. Well, it's not the love of emotion. It's not physical love or friendship love. It's a love of the will. It's the highest and noblest, and it is habitual. It continues We are to love one another. We are commanded to do that. And it's a love that chooses to love because there is a need to be loved. And not because of any kind of attraction that may naturally draw us to love someone. that's, That's easy. So this love becomes a manifestation of the life of God in us. And John's going to give us six reasons. Six reasons why we are to love. We're going to look at three of them this morning. Martinez, next Sunday you're going to have to listen for the, get the next three. Reason number one, we are to love because love is the essence of God. We are to love because love is the essence of God. Verse 7 and 8, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Love comes from God, verse 7. Love is God, verse 8. What he is saying very simply is, let us who are beloved of God, who belong to God, let us love, because that is consistent with who God is. You know, it's interesting that in chapter 1, verse 5, we learn that the essence of the nature of God is light. And then we also learn in chapter 3 that God is life. And here we find out that God is also love. So if we truly know God, if we're walking in the light, if we possess the life, we also have received the love. And so John is being very clear here. Let us love one another for love comes from God. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, made a simple statement but very profound. The Christian practices being God. Let that sink in a minute. The Christian practices being God. We are to be the reflection of God. We are God's children manifesting His nature. We manifest His light. We manifest His life. We manifest His love. We literally reflect God. I believe it was Alexander the Great who had a soldier, you may have heard this before, who had the same name as him, Alexander. One day, the soldier was unfaithful in duty and demonstrated cowardice. And Alexander the Great called him in and said, Soldier, either change your behavior or change your name. I think that, in a sense, is what John is saying here. If you're going to call yourself a Christian and use Christ's name within that title, if you're going to say you are God's and you belong to God and you truly are His, then John says, conduct yourself as He would. 
with love. He goes on to say at the end of verse 7, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We're not talking about human love. We're not talking about temporal love. We're not talking about sexual love or human affection. We're talking here about this transcendent love known only to those who are His. We're talking about this perfect love of God, love to the max, which a world will never know. You are to love because He is the giver of love. And to everyone born of God, which the offer is open, He grants that love. If you're born of God and you know God, then you have the love. God is a source, so He alone is the giver. Everyone who loves has been born of God, John says. That's in the perfect tense. Past action with continuous results. Everyone who loves is giving evidence that they've been born of God. It's a continual thing. To be born of someone means to share their nature, right? If we've been born of God, then the love of God will be demonstrated through us. If we know God in that intimate way, if we possess the life of God, we then have that capacity to love. And the opposite is true. John points that out there in verse 8. Whoever does not love, they don't love God. It's that simple. If you don't love, and he's talking about loving one another, it's evidence that you don't know God. People have left churches because they were not able to manifest that love to others. Christians today have been caught up in the culture of offense oftentimes. It's something, if something doesn't go their way, they get offended and angry. Over the years, it's been simple things like the color of the carpet. You can change the carpet. Ah, I don't like that. Or maybe it's changing from hymn books to words up on the screen. Maybe it's changing from the King James Version to the NIV or another translation. In a past ministry, a church I was in had a very small, simple pulpit made out of plywood. It was, it was okay, but I thought it would be nice to have one of those neat plexiglass sharp-looking pulpits up there. And so I, I, I broached that and, and uh, said, you know, I'd I like to do that. And I was told very firmly, you can't do that because so-and-so's daddy made that pulpit, and they're going to get upset. Oftentimes, and I've seen this in many churches, it's a pet ministry that someone has started and becomes the epitome of all ministries to the point of almost becoming an idol. And when it's changed because it's no longer effective or no longer useful, or perhaps even it's becoming detrimental, offense is taken, anger replaces love, anger tends towards hatred, and people leave. In any of those scenarios, God's perfect love is no longer being manifested. You see, God by nature, end of verse 8, is love. It's more than God's love. It's God is love. And we are one in Christ. If we are one in Christ, we now have that new nature. We've got God's nature. We talked about that in depth when we were going through the letter to the Colossians. Our old sinful nature was crucified, dead, and buried. We were then given a new nature and are expected to live accordingly. A part of that new nature is this perfect love of God that He has poured out into us. Now, let's, let's talk about God's love a minute. I keep saying God is love. God or, or, 
We need to understand that love does not define God. God defines love. People often say, well, if God is a God of love, why does he allow? Whatever, fill in the blank. If God is love, why do bad things happen? See, people try to define God, but what they think love ought to be or what love ought to do. Again, love does not define God. God defines love. He is not subject to human definitions. For example, God's love actually explains creation. Have you ever thought about that? His love actually explains creation. Here's a question. Why would God create a world which brings him so much trouble? Because God is love, and he wants to express that beyond himself. That's what love does. It, it, love is of no use whatsoever if you don't share it with somebody. So he created objects to love and by whom he will in return be loved. It even explains human volition, human choice, our free will. God has designed that sinners love God. That's how he designed it. That's, that's his desire. Not apart from our will, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. People are not robots, but God wants them to love him. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he provides for that possibility, despite the fact that man has rebelled against him. But that's why God, God is love explains redemption as well. If God was only law, he would leave me to the consequence of my sin. <clears throat> the moral law would operate, the soul would die, eternal justice would damn the soul to hell. But God is love, and I'm so grateful he is. And so he seeks and saves and provides a remedy for sin. The fact that God is love explains life after death as well. God doesn't force his presence on those who don't love him. He provides it for those who do. And those who enter into the presence of God forever to enjoy his presence in heaven will be those who have desired that above everything else. God is love. Let me explain it another way. The perfect love of God is expressed both in, gen in a general sense and in a specific sense. There's a, there is a general or universal love of God expressed over the world, a sort of unconditional, indiscriminate, unlimited love of God which extends over the world. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 speaks of God's love for mankind, despite their sinfulness. For we also once were foolish ourselves, he writes, Paul writes, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We were horrible people, he was saying. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us by his mercy. Matthew 5, Jesus talks about loving our enemies as our Heavenly Father does. You see, there, there is a love that God has for the world. He is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, the Savior of all men. So how is that love manifested? Well, the theolo there's something that theologians call common grace. You know, the world is a beautiful place. God created it. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Scripture tells us that. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The snow falls on the just and the unjust. 
God's goodness pervades the world in which we live. He holds the world together. And until he decides to let go, he's going to keep it running. We saw that in Colossians chapter 1. For in him all things were created. They were created through him and for him. And in him, what? All things hold together. Folks, he, he is not going to allow global warming or global cooling to destroy his world. He is not going to allow gaseous emissions from cattle to destroy his world. Now, there's another way God manifests his love to the whole world, and that's his compassion. And it's his compassion and love towards mankind that causes him to what? Withhold judgment. Causes him to withhold judgment. Every sinner should die for their very first sin. After all, the wages of sin is death. Scripture is clear. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, He is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's his compassion. <clears throat> he is withholding his judgment. A third way in which his love is expressed to all is, is the many, many warnings that he has given. The Bible is filled with them, warnings about the consequences of sin, warnings about what is going to be transpiring in the age to come. All the warnings of the Bible are evidences of the love of God. We read in Ezekiel chapter 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. That's his desire. That's what he wants to see because of his love for all of mankind. And fourthly, he shows that general love to all by extending the gospel offer to the, to the ends of the earth. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, he actually put it into creation. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. He makes it visible to everybody, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And then he sends his ministers, he sends his disciples, he sends you and I over the face of the earth to tell the story of the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's his heart. All that shows the all-encompassing general universal love of God for mankind. That's the expression of His nature. He is by nature a loving God to all. But that aspect of His love, that aspect of His love has its limits in the sense that it doesn't go beyond this life. It doesn't go beyond this life. Hebrews 9.27 states very clearly that it's appointed unto man to what? Die once and after that to face judgment. But there is this everlasting aspect of God's love. This is distinct and different from the universal love for all mankind. If we look at the Gospel of John chapter 13, we see a great parallel to John's epistle that we're studying here. In verse 1, we read, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. So this is the Passion Week. Um, they were in, in the upper room. This is just before Judas goes out to betray Him. And the next part of the verse says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Telos is the Greek word. He loved them to the end. It's from the same Greek root word that we looked at earlier, teleao. Perfect. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them eternally. He loved them perfectly, his own. 
The God who is, who is perfect love loves his own perfectly. It's that eternal love which God lavishes upon you and I. And so God is love. Back to 1 John 4, verse 8. He loves the world, demonstrating it through common grace, compassion, warnings, and gospel opportunity. But that love is temporary. It is earthly and only for this lifetime. In the next life, there will be the judgment and the wrath of God for those who refuse it. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved." Did we catch that? The love that he has for us, his great love, his perfect love, he shows us while we're here and when we enter in eternity forever, in the ages to come. This is the God of love. He is our God and he dwells within us. So John says, with that in mind, love, let us love one another. Spend a lot of time on God's love, but with that love and that capacity of love and all that means in us, love one another, for love comes from God. All that love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God, which is another way of saying that his life is now in us. And if we know God in this intimate way, then we will demonstrate that love. And whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is by nature love. Inside the body of believers, inside the fellowship, inside the family, among those who know God's presence in their lives, we are to be characterized by love. The second reason we are to love with this perfect love is that this love was manifested by Christ. This love was manifested by Christ. We read in verses 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. He says again, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's His love. God who is by nature love, God who has taken up residence in us and flooded us with His love, is the God who expressed that love so magnanimously, so gloriously in, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So John's saying, let us love then, on, on the one hand, because we share the love that God's poured out into us, but let us love because what we've seen God do in expressing His love through His Son. This is how God showed His love among us. This is how He manifested His love for us. He did it by sending His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. If God was so willing to manifest His love that way in Christ, should we not manifest the love that He's given us, that same kind of love, to others in the spirit of sacrifice? This perfect love of God and how He expressed it through His Son had nothing to do with our love for Him. Had nothing to do with our love for Him. This is love, John says, not that we loved God. That's not why. 
It wasn't because we were wonderful, <laughs> loving creatures that deserved his love. Not at all. Paul says that we were by nature sinners deserving a wrath. But that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the point he's making is that God's free, spontaneous love in sacrificing his son is the model for us to love. We've not only been given the love, but we've been given the model of how that love functions in selfless sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to sacrifice for himself. We know that. There was no sacrifice needed for him because he had no sin in him. Listen to Isaiah 53. We've heard a million times. But listen to the enormity of the description of Jesus' sacrifice. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And then verse 6, an amazing verse. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all who are deserving of his wrath to fall on him. He caused it to fall on Christ. In verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But it was more than his will. It was more than the decision that God was making. The Greek uh, word actually uh, says, it pleased him. It pleased him. It's a word that means to take delight in, to take pleasure in. Why? Because he loved us so much. For God so loved the world. Incomprehensible. Therefore, says John, we are to love and love in that way. Verse 11, back to our passage. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to what? Love one another. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said back in John chapter 15, than to lay down one's life for one's friend. It's a sacrificial love. Why are we commanded to love? It doesn't come naturally. <laughs> this is not no, normal, natural human instinct to love this way. Because like the world, even within the church, it's often become all about me, 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 me. Fix me, make me happy, make me satisfied. It's not about Christ and it's not about others. It's become the pursuit of self. Paul exclaims in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Where did the pursuit of God go? Where did seek first His kingdom and His righteousness go? If we go back to chapter 3, verse 16, there in 1 John, we read, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We need to be willing to give it all up for Jesus. You see, our ability to love comes from the life of God in us. Our duty to love is demanded by the enormity of the sacrifice of the Father in the giving of His Son. 
That love is our standard. And we understand the cross because we couldn't experience salvation without understanding that. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. You want to know how to love? Imitate God. Imitate God. And then he goes on to say that we are to imitate Christ as well, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. That's the imitation. God gave up his son, and his son gives up his own life. So we are to love one another because, first, God is a source of love, and we bear his nature, and so we have literally been filled with that love. And we are to love one another because, secondly, Christ is a manifestation of the Father's love and is a great example of self-giving love. Let me give you a third reason briefly as we close. We're also to love because love is our testimony. Love is our testimony. Look at verse 12. This is kind of cool. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Same word, it's it's perfected in us. What John is pointing out is that nobody can see God because God's a spirit. Okay, that's, that's, that's a given. So how are people going to know about his power and about, and about his glory and about his love? If we love one another. If we love one another, that is evidence of God living in us. And as he's living in us, his, he's, he's perfecting his love in and through us. And therefore, he's putting himself on display in us. It's no longer I who live, Paul wrote, right? It's Christ who lives in me. He's putting himself on display through us. And that's the point. If we love one another, God's on display. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you what? If you love one another. All peoples will see that. The unseen God becomes seen in the love of believers. When we love as we should... When his love is perfected in us, we reveal that he lives in us and that he abides in us. Our love is evidence of his indwelling presence, and it becomes a revelation uh, of that presence to others. So, if we are true Christians, remember, these are tests that John is laying out here in these five chapters of 1 John. If we are true Christians, we have the capacity to love We have the example how to love, and we have the responsibility to love because that's how we prove, number one, we belong to God, and secondly, that's how we witness and give testimony to the watching world. The perfect love of God. Come back next week. We'll give you the three reasons that we need to love like this. Father, thank you for your perfect love. It's beyond all measure. It's beyond our total comprehension. And you didn't just say, go go and love. You said, here's how to love. Watch me. Watch how I love you. You don't deserve it. You deserve to die. My wrath should be being poured out upon you, but I love you. I love you, and therefore, it's going to please me to sacrifice my own son because through his sacrifice, you are going to have life. and That's what's pleasing to me. And it's worth it all. And As I have sacrificed, I want you to show that same sacrifice and the same kind of love to those that are around you.
because it's that love that is going to draw people to myself. Father, I pray that we will be that testimony, that we will exercise. We, have, we already have the love. We've got the capacity of love. And John says, get out, get out there and do it. Get out there and do it. And Father, I pray that we will express that in the name of Jesus. Amen.